Any bacon lovers in here? All right, a few. If you're not, get out. Um, so I, uh, I read this article and I just felt uh, compelled to, to share it with you, but it's five health benefits of eating bacon. Um, and uh, my wife is gonna hate everything that I'm about to say, uh, but this is, this goes back years for us. We had been married probably about uh, 15 years. I mean, we've been married a long time. And I was talking to her that morning and she said, we're gonna do breakfast for dinner, which I love, like any chance to eat bacon, um, bacon, eggs, pancakes, all that stuff. And so I get home and I walk in the house and it's not the familiar smell of bacon. And I'm like, what is that? She bought turkey bacon. Uh, so I got a divorce lawyer on retainer um, and told her if we ever do that again, it's over. But, um, uh, but so she's gonna hate everything that I'm gonna say that I'm about to read, but I read it on Facebook, so I know it's true. Um, so, but here's some benefits of bacon. So number one, bacon is packed with useful nutrients. It doesn't just have useful nutrients, it's packed with useful nutrients, such as protein, vitamin Bs. I didn't even know there was more than one vitamin B, but apparently there's several of them. It's got vitamin Bs, phosphorus, don't even know what that is, but sign me up for that. Minerals such as iron, zinc, potassium. Put away the bananas and get out the bacon. Uh, it's a source of omega-3s. Omega-3 is a fatty acid commonly associated with like uh, oily fish, uh, flaxseed, and nuts. Listen to this, a healthy, I'm not making this up, a healthy intake of omega-3 can help reduce your risk of heart disease and stroke, reduce the symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis. Some of you need to turn in the prescription and just eat some more bacon. Uh, that's what this article says. And it even helps with depression. So like for me, I, don't, I, I hate cold. I hate when it's uh, like just sort of dark all winter long. I just need to eat more bacon. Uh, the third benefit of bacon is it can boost your mood it always boosts mine, so I know that's a fact. Uh, it helps with food cravings. Man, if you got bacon, what else do you need? Uh, and then number five, I think this is really important. This is stuff you guys need to know. It's good for the brain. It's a source of, of choline. Again, I have no idea what that is, but it's a source of that. Uh, choline, in addition, in addition to preventing age-based cognitive decline, a healthy intake of choline through foods like bacon could also contribute to better memory, faster cognition speeds, and keep your brain healthier for longer. Man, all this time, they've been telling us bacon is no good for you, and here are five unknown benefits. I didn't know about any of this stuff till I read it the other day. Uh, now the question is, is everybody listening? Because you're probably going, what in the world does this have to do with Romans? <laughs> Nothing. I just felt compelled to, to share that with you. Um, he li he's, it's benefits, right? So there are benefits of, of bacon, whether it's true or not, there's benefits of bacon. I choose to take this as fact. Um, there are benefits of other things in life. And a lot of the things that we do and experience in life, we're unaware of the benefits, or maybe we know of some of them, but then we stumble on others along the way. And so in Romans, Paul starts out by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the, the, the title of this series is unashamed. I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he begins to, to, to dig into what that means. And over the first three chapters of Romans, he's making the case that we all need the gospel, whether you're uh, a pagan, whether you're a moral person, whether you're a religious person, we all need the gospel. And then in chapter four, he props up Abraham. We looked at him last week as an example and says, even look at the life of Abraham. When was he declared right in the eyes of God? It was through his faith before he did anything. It came back to what, to what he believed. And so he's built this case about the gospel. And then now in chapter five, 
the first half of the chapter, he's going to start to dig into some of the benefits that the gospel has for us that I think a lot of times we're unaware of. Like for many of us in here, when we think of the gospel, we see it as a prayer we prayed, maybe when we were a little kid or a prayer we prayed in the past. And then somewhere in the future, when we die and we stand before God, it's that prayer and the belief in Jesus that's going to get us into heaven. And that's what we see as the gospel. It's kind of this this bookends, and then we forget about and just sort of try to survive everything else in between. We just sort of just sort of track through life going, man, if I can just survive when I get to the pearly gates, I'm going to get in because I believed in Jesus. And that's what we've, many of us have reduced the gospel to. And so Paul takes us on this walk in chapter five and says, there are things that you and I get with the gospel that many of us are unaware of. And he starts in chapter five, he says, therefore, five verse one, Therefore is a connecting word. What he's about to say is built on the back of what he's just said. So all of this stuff uh, connects. I read that the book of Romans is built largely on four therefores. One is at the end of chapter three regarding the gospel and salvation. This one that we're gonna look at this morning. There's another one in eight where we, don't, where we no longer are condemned. And then there's another one in chapter 12 that we'll get to uh, down the road. But the book of Romans, man, if you just figure out those four therefores, uh, you'll understand a significant amount of what Paul is trying to teach in this book. But he says, therefore, in light of what I've just said, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. So right away, he tells us one of the benefits we have of being made right in, uh, declared right in the eyes of God is it gives us peace. The, the Greek word for peace is the word that means to, to set at one again. It's the, the picture of something that was, that was whole, but then was broken, and then now has been made whole again. Maybe it's a relationship where you were in a relationship. There was a, a, a fight or tension. That relationship was broken, but then you resolved it. Another example would be like if you've ever broken a bone. Uh, maybe you're, you, you play sports, and you showed up that night to play a game, and your arms were fine, and then you broke one of them, and all of a sudden doesn't work, your whole body hurts, you go to the doctor or the ER, they set it, and in time, it gets to the point, you know, several months later, but eventually it gets to the point where you wouldn't even know that you had broken it, right? It's, it's gone from whole to broken and then whole again. The condition of humanity, we were created in a place of perfect community and communion with God in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, all of humanity fell with them. We are born as sinners. We, are, we choose sin by choice because we have a nature to choose sin. So we, in the beginning of the creation of humanity, there was, there was communion that was broken. And then now through the person work of Jesus that is made uh, at one again. Reconciliation with God, to bring, be brought back together in peace with God through the person and work of Jesus. Verse two, he says, not only do we have peace with God, but because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. He says, not only do we have peace with God, but in addition to having peace with God, we also are brought into a place of undeserved privilege. Or another word you could use there would be the word grace. Grace is, uh, when you think of grace and mercy, grace is, is getting what we, uh, what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And then grace is, is the is the alternate to that. We don't, not because of God's mercy, we don't experience being eternally separated from him. But as if that wasn't enough, we're now eternally reconciled to him. We get all of these things that, that we don't deserve. And because of our faith, because of that transfer of faith to Jesus, Christ has brought us into this 
place of, of undeserved privilege, brought us to, to be introduced to something. A few years ago, I had the, the opportunity to go to the first Canes playoff game after it was like a nine-year drought. They were playing the, uh, the Washington Capitals, and we got to go to the game. And one of the things that we got to do after the game is the group that I was with, we got to go uh, spend the post-game in the locker room with the coaching staff and with the players. Now, if you know anything about a professional sporting event, they don't just let anybody in. I can go down there and tell them uh, you're supposed to be in there and you'll probably leave in handcuffs. You've got to have someone that is a connector that brings you into that. The connector for us is we knew a guy named Skip Cunningham who was the, the Canes uh, equipment manager at the time. And he arranged if they won, we would get to go into the locker room. And so we got to go into this unique, special, really cool place and incredible atmosphere. Like it was electric in there. Those guys were so excited. The first playoff game they had won in, in almost a decade. And so it was an incredible experience. It was an incredible place, but it was a place that we were only able to get to because of someone that we knew. Without the connection of Skip, we would have never been able to experience it. This place, this throne room of undeserved privilege is something that you and I have access to only because of Jesus. We are brought into this place of undeserved privilege because of, because of what Jesus has done. And it says that we experience this, but it says we now stand in it. Again, when we think of the gospel, we think of the past and then we think of the future. And Paul says the undeserved privilege is happening right now, which is, which is really important for us because I think for a lot of us, we lose sight of that. Just think about the way you approach God right now. Like, do you approach God believing that you are in, you are under this umbrella or in this throne room of undeserved privilege? I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't always approach him that way. Like scripture teaches us that we can approach him confidently. We can go into his presence boldly because of what Jesus has done. But, but when we approach God, do we, do we view ourselves as being under this grace, this undeserved privilege? I think a lot of times we don't. I mean, I think we more connect with words like unworthy. Like I'm not worthy of your presence. I'm not worthy of your grace. The reality is we're, we're, we're not. But Jesus has done the work to, in order for God to declare us as now worthy because of Jesus. So the argument of whether or not we deserve it doesn't really matter because God's the one that sets the rules. And God says, this is something that, that you have. Maybe we approach him like he's mad at us or he disapproves of us, always uncertain of what his view is of us, feeling the need to, to earn his favor or maybe to negotiate or try to behave our way into that place of, of undeserved privilege. And this is where we come back to the things that we know to be true. This is what Paul is doing as he's, as he's really detailing out all of these things that we have in the gospel. These are the things that we anchor to. These are the things that are true because we're in Christ. Uh, we've talked about this before in the book of Ephesians. Paul talks a lot about being in Christ, that as followers of Jesus, we are now in Christ. So the spirit of Jesus is living in us, but we are in Christ. And we've used the example before of a water bottle. Like you take a, you take a water bottle. Everything that is true about that bottle is true about the water in it, as long as the water is in the bottle. So if you take a, a bottle of water and you throw it, you hide it, you lose it, 
the, the bottle and the water are thrown, the bottle and the water are, are hidden. Whatever is true about the bottle is true about the water as long as the water is in the bottle. And so everything that is true about Jesus is true about me and is true about you if we are in Christ, if, if we have given our lives to, G, to Jesus, if we have transferred our faith from anything that we can do and put our faith and trust solely and solely in Jesus and Jesus alone. Like when we do that, we are then declared right in God's eyes and God views us, he views you and he views me exactly the way he views Jesus. And that we can enter his presence knowing that we are in this place of undeserved privilege because that's what he's declared over us. And we've, got, and we've got to move to a point where we don't allow our feelings to dictate what we believe, but instead, instead allow our beliefs to, to, to guide and to drive our feelings. For a lot of us, we feel our way into belief. Like depending on how I feel about how God views me right now determines what I believe about what God views about me. So if I don't feel worthy, then I convince myself that in God's sight I am, that I'm unworthy. But that's not what this teaches us. What this teaches us is regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of what you're going to do, if you are in Christ, that you are in this place of, un, of undeserved privilege. And he's giving us this new perspective that we have peace. We have undeserved privilege. And then in verse three, he says something interesting. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Now, I'm not just going to gloss over that because I know the immediate reaction is like, like pump the brakes, joy and suffering. Like, how is that even a thing? How is that even impossible? How is that even possible? How could Paul ask us to do something like that? Like, how are we supposed to find joy with everything that's going on around us? And how am I supposed to find joy when, when I'm experiencing employment challenges or their economic struggles? How am I supposed to find joy in relational conflict and hurt? How am I supposed to find joy in personal struggles and sickness or even, or even in death? And, and, and I want you to understand, Paul's intention here is not to, to trivialize what we're walking through. He's not trying to give us some cliches on, on suffering. You ever, you, you ever lose somebody you love and somebody means well, but they come up to you and say, oh, they're in a better place. I'm so glad you said that because I didn't know that. Like, thank you for shedding a light on that. I feel so much better. It doesn't hurt anymore, right? Like those, those things don't, don't change how we feel. Or you're walking through something, man, God's got a plan. Good's gonna come out of this. Like, like Paul's intention here is to not trivialize what we're experiencing, is not to minimize our suffering. He knows that sufferings of this life aren't fun. And he also knows that God doesn't delight in our pain. But because of all that we have in the gospel, all of those truths that we can cling to and anchor to, he says, because of that, we can experience joy. Now, now, joy is difficult for us to understand because we often confuse joy with happiness. Like happiness is about happenings. It's happy and happen are like, they're like part of the same word. Happiness is external. It's an emotion that is controlled by what's happening around me and to me. My happiness changes based on what I'm experiencing. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with being unhappy. There are times when things in this life affect how we feel, and that's okay. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says, make me happy by getting along. He's writing to the Philippian Christians, and obviously they're bickering, there's tension about things. And he goes, man, you need to stop fighting and just 
just get along. Every parent in here understands what he's talking about. I mean, you go on a road trip and the kids are in the back seat and they're fighting about something and you ask them what they're fighting about and it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. And you're, and you're, and you're going like, I, I cannot believe this. Like for me, there are times where I'm like, I wanna just like, you know, bash their heads together or waterboard them or do something to them. Like to just be like, okay, like enough. Like I'm not happy about what is happening. And Paul says to the Philippians, I'm not happy about what is happening. Make me happy by getting along. 30 times in the New Testament or in the Bible, happiness is, is mentioned. It's okay to be happy. It's normal and natural at times to be unhappy, to be sad. Joy is mentioned 300 times in the Bible. Happiness is, is external. It's based on what's happening around me. Joy is internal. It's a settled assurance in Christ it's a settled assurance in Christ that is unchanging because Christ is unchanging. It's, it's what we're anchored to. It's what, we're, it's what our lives are, are built up or, or propped up on. Paul was often in pain. There are times he was sad, he was angry, even in agony. But in the midst of that, he may not have always been happy, but he always chose joy because he knew what he had in Christ and that is what he put his, what he put his hope in. So Paul's point is not to say rejoice or find joy in suffering. He's not telling us to, to sign up for suffering. Like, we, like we're not gonna leave here today and go, man, I can't wait for a bad week. Like he's not suggesting that we do that. And he's also not suggesting that, that we become stoics. Stoic is someone who can endure pain without showing emotion or complaining. I watch a lot of Christians who try to put on this, this, this fake, uh, you know, like fake image of strength. Like, man, it's all good because God's in control. No, the reality is what you're walking through is, is terrible. It's painful. You don't have to pretend to be happy through it, but you can find joy in it because of, of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done. And that's where, our joy, that's where our joy in this life and in suffering comes from. I would say it this way. We look through our suffering to our certainty to what we know is true, not only now, but also what we know is true in the future, what lies and what lies ahead. It's like the last day before you go on a vacation. Like no matter how long the to-do list is, no matter how stressful the meetings are, you sit there and you imagine where you're gonna be in 24 hours. Like this is me. If you happen to meet with me the, the day we're, my wife and I are going on a trip to Chicago in June, if you happen to meet with me the day before that meeting, I'm not listening. You can say anything you want. You can yell and scream. You can tell me I'm the worst pastor in the world. And I'm like, yeah, I'm probably gonna agree with you because I know in 24 hours where I'm gonna be. And so you look through the suffering of that meeting. You look through the suffering of that day to what lies ahead, to what you know with certainty that, that you can cling to and with certainty that you can hold to. That Paul is saying that we look through our suffering and we look to our certainty. That now as children of God, as, recon, as a reconciled relationship, as those that have peace with God, we now view suffering different, dif differently because we know that it's accomplishing something. We may not like it, but we know that it's accomplishing something. Look at what he says um, at the end of verse three. It says, for we know that they, uh, that they help us develop endurance. Number two, endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope 
of salvation. He's going to walk us through a progression, like giving us a little bit of a perspective of, of what's happening, that our, that our pain is not in vain, that God's not going to waste the suffering of this, of this life. And he says we can look at it differently because we know that suffering develops endurance. Endurance, the word that's used there is the word for single-mindedness. It, it helps us focus on something. Athletes in the room, like the, the position that you play on the basketball team or the football team, there are things that, that you have to focus. There's 97,000 other things going on on that football field, but you've got one job to do. You've got to, you've got to stay focused. Or if you've ever sat in a meeting, sat in a staff meeting, there's a bunch of things being talked about, and then you get a text or an email that, that makes you mad, uh, that makes you upset, maybe even makes you excited. And all of a sudden, all of the other things that are spinning in that room don't matter anymore. And you've just gotten laser focused on responding to this person who maybe has ruined your day. And all of a sudden, in a moment, the things that seemed important, not that they're not important anymore, but for, for a moment, for a brief time, you're only focused on one thing. And Paul says, suffering does that for us. It causes us to focus. The question we have to consider is, are we going to focus on the trials and the suffering of this life? Or are we going to focus on the things that we have in Christ, the things that we have with certainty that we can cling to? He says it develops endurance. And endurance develops strength of character or, uh, or testedness. It's the word uh, battle-tested. Watching uh, March Madness this, this weekend, you're watching some of these teams that have been uh, together for years. I, was, I, uh, I go to bed really early on Saturday nights. Um, uh, I go to bed at eight o'clock on, on most Saturday evenings. And um, I woke up last night and uh, I don't remember what time it was, but there were like 10 minutes left in the Gonzaga game. And, and I, I love watching. Uh, someone said this morning, it's Gonzaga. Is it Gonzaga or Gonzaga? Who says Gonzaga? Okay, we're all right. Um, uh, <laughs> Kim, we got it. Um, I'll take me and Kim in a fight against everybody in here, and with Kim, I will win. Um, uh, so, uh, but anyways, I love to watch them. Like, they're this team that they've played together for years. They're battle-tested. Uh, they were down 10 points at halftime. But when you watch them play, at no point was there ever a doubt in their mind that they were going to win that game because they had been there before, and Memphis hadn't. They knew what it took to win that. I, was a, I grew up near Boston, and so I grew up a big Celtics fan. The Celtics teams of the 80s, they, they had the, the crown in the East for a while, and Detroit kind of had to, to take their lumps, and eventually they became the best team. And then Michael Jordan and the Bulls came along, and Jordan was the, the best athlete on the, the court at any time against all of those teams. But he still had to lose a few years. He had to be battle-tested to be prepared to, to understand how it was strengthening him in order to ultimately one day be able to to beat everybody else. And so Paul says that suffering develops endurance. It causes us to focus. Focus builds that, that, that strength of character. And Paul was a guy himself who was battle-tested. He could speak confidently about what suffering did because he lived it regularly. And then he says, character strengthens our hope. Our hope is in, is in the resurrection. Verse number five, he says, this hope will not lead us to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. He says, this hope will not lead us to disappointment. That's a promise that we can cling to. There are so many things in this life that we cling to 
that wind up in disappointment. There are relationships we look to to exist in a capacity that only God can exist, and they lead us down a road of disappointment. Remember, as a, as a kid at, at Christmas, I'd get tons of Christmas presents, but there were a few years, the one thing I wanted I didn't get, and just being so disappointed and feeling so let down. Maybe you didn't get the job. Maybe your marriage didn't last. Maybe the gas prices are continuing to rise. Maybe that person that hurt you isn't brought to justice. And even worse, in, in some of the relational conflict we experience, it's not even that they're not brought to justice, but they seem to be living their best life. And you sit there and you go, God, like, what are you doing? Why is this, why is this happening? There are a lot of things in this life that will disappoint us. So we've got to place our hope in the only thing and the only one that will not fail us. Our hope is in the unchanging power of the gospel and the promises of God that will show us a way through whatever this life will throw at us. And he goes on and he says, we know God loves us and we know how, and we know how he loves us. He's shown us that love by, by giving us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. The spirit that was alive in Jesus when Jesus on this earth is now the spirit that is alive in us. The Holy Spirit was given as a, as a down payment. It was Jesus' way of saying, I'm leaving, I'm sending the Spirit. The Spirit is the down payment as a promise to you that I'm coming back to get you to bring you to where I am. And one day Jesus will return and will take us to where he is. And until that day happens, we have the Spirit living in us to do things the Bible tells us, to do things like to teach us, to guide us and to direct us, to remind us of the things that, that Jesus has told us, to intercede or, and, and to encourage us. And if the, the spirit of Jesus living in us isn't enough evidence of that, he says, you just go back to the cross. He says, he says uh, the spirit, verse six, he says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Man, if the spirit isn't enough, if all of these things that we've experienced, all of these benefits aren't enough, look no further than the cross. He says in verse seven, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. I mean, sometimes it's rare, but sometimes a heroic person will sacrifice their life for someone they love. You read stories of soldiers diving on a grenade to save their, their fellow soldiers, or maybe a mother that gives her life to save the life of her child. Like those instances are rare, but they happen. I'll be totally honest with you, the list of people I'd die for is really, really small. Like if, if I'm honest with myself, like, it, you know, I, I love all of you guys, but I'm not sure that I'm there yet. Um, <laughs> but the list for me is, it's a pretty small list. And he says, it's uncommon, but maybe it happens occasionally for someone who's really good. Verse eight, he says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were, while we were still sinners. So here he takes it a step further. He says, it's not the soldier giving his life for, the, for his friend or the mother dying for the life of her child. In this instance, it's the mother giving her child's life to save someone that is an enemy. Like parents, let that, let that just sit for a minute. Think of middle school years in our house. Middle school is a, a, is a really tough time for kids. 
Parents, you remember the first time your, your child came home and told you about something that someone said or did to them that hurt them? Do you remember how you felt about somebody else's kid? The first time my kids came home, I understood why back in my dad's day, people used to spank other people's kids. <laughs> I'm like, give me five minutes and a whip in an alley with that kid and they'll come out. But could you imagine, understand the depth of God's love for us that God sent his son not to die for his friends, but to die in the place of his enemies. If you ever doubt God's love, and, and, and listen, this is one continuous thought. When we're walking through, through trials and suffering in this life, that is the time more than ever that we question all of the things that we believe and know to be true. That's when our faith is tested. That's when the questions come up, man. Does he love me? Like, man, if, if he loved me, would I be experiencing this? And he says, when you feel that way, look no further than the cross. That while we were his enemies, Jesus stepped down and the Father allowed him to come into this world to save us. That when we were far from our God, our God came, came near to us. That when we couldn't become a God or become like our God, which is the utopia of every religion, every religion is to either be a God or to become like God. When we couldn't become like him, he became one of us. The single action that proves without a doubt that God loves you and I unconditionally was him allowing Jesus to die in our place. And no matter what we walk through, no matter what we experience in this life, the times we doubt his love, we can anchor to the knowledge that he loves us because he gave Jesus to prove it. He goes on in verse nine and says, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. The only condemnation we feel in this life is self-inflicted. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is no condemnation coming from him to us. It's just what we self-impose upon ourselves. He says in verse 10, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Man, these are truths that you cling to and things that we anchor to when the uncertainty of life comes our way, when trials and difficulty and suffering comes into our path, that our friendship with God was restored. The, the translation you have may use the word reconciliation. I like this better, friendship, because reconciliation means to put an end to hostility between us and God. It's a peace agreement. It's like a ceasefire. Like think Russia and Ukraine, if, if all of a sudden cooler heads prevailed and they just came to a, an agreement of peace, there's a ceasefire, there's peace, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a relationship. The word that Paul uses here is not only a ceasefire or a peace agreement, but it's a word that carries with it the understanding of a harmonious relationship that is established. All of this happens through his death, burial, and resurrection. His death proves his love for us, and his resurrection proves that his sovereign power is at work to make all things work together for our good somehow. In other words, if you believe that Jesus will be faithful in eternity, then you've got to believe that he is faithful right here and right now in this life. And one day, 
you and I will be resurrected by him just as he was resurrected. We will become like him. The Bible says because we will see him as he is. All of the suffering in this life will no longer matter. Revelation says he will wipe away every tear and remove every heartache. That's what I mean when I say looking through our suffering and looking to our certainty is what we know we're promised. But not only are we promised some things in eternity, we're, we're, we've been promised some things now and his resurrection proves that whatever it is that we're walking through, he's going to use it somehow, some way to bring about good. I'll be honest with you, I don't know why suffering exists in this life. Met with people in times of loss, I've experienced loss, injustice that exists around us. What's happening in Ukraine, some of the stories that are coming out of there from people that are on the ground, just devastating and heartbreaking. And I, and I, I, I can't tell you I understand it, and I also can't give you some statement to take away to, to make it all feel better, to make it all make sense. But I know in this passage, a few things that we can walk away understanding. Number one is that suffering no, lo no longer has to mean that we did something wrong. What's the natural response when something bad happens to us? What did I do wrong to deserve this? Now, scripture teaches at times that God does, he, it says he chastens or corrects those he loves. But generally speaking, what we're walking through in this life Suffering doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. And I think some of you need to hear that this morning. Suffering doesn't mean that God has forgotten you or abandoned you. Suffering doesn't mean that God has taken his hand off of your life or that he's no longer involved. We know that to be true because of all of these promises, all of these benefits that are communicated to us, that we have peace with God. That even in the midst of suffering, we are under, we are in this throne room of undeserved privilege. And at the end of the day, suffering in this life, as difficult as it may be, we know that God is doing something in it. God is doing something in us through it. Philippians 1, Paul writes, and he says, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Whatever you're walking through, whatever you're experiencing, God is doing something. There's a work that's taking, taking place, and he will continue that work until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. That's a promise for here and now. He says the work's gonna be done when Jesus comes back. But between now and then, he's going to continue to do this work in this life. And then Romans 8, 28 says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Regardless of what you're experiencing today, regardless of what you carried in here with you this morning. I can promise you that God is gonna cause everything to work together for good. 
that's just not words from me. That, that, that's words from him. It's a promise. There are a lot of things that we don't know. And so that's why we have to hold tightly to the things that we do know. That God has taken everything that we are experiencing, every trial of this life, making every wrong it's going to make it right everything that's broken is going to be made whole everything that is sin is destroying the gospel is changing everything that is bad he's making good you should bow your heads with me and why don't you stand with me Man, right now, maybe the only thing that you have to cling to is you know God loves you. Things going on in your home, maybe at your job, with your health, with the loss of someone you care for. And right now, the only thing that you have to cling to is you know he loves you. I want you to know this morning that, I want you to believe this morning that he is working whatever it is for good. We may see it in our lifetime, we may not. trust that he's working it together for good. God is good. God's character is goodness. And because God is good, God is only capable of doing good. So Father, we know that you love us. You sent Jesus to sacrifice his life for us. And in the midst of our suffering, our pain, and our sorrow, we declare to you this morning that you are good. And we trust that you're working good in whatever it is this life 